The following Taisho by Shinge Roshi, Roko Sheri Shayat, was recorded at the Zen Center of Syracuse Hoenji in Syracuse, New York. These recordings are offered for free. We welcome your financial support. To contribute and for further information, please visit www.zencenterofsyracuse.org. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's so nice to have one of our very long-time practitioners, Megetsu, Rebecca Beers, here on a visit from her somewhat new, I guess not so new anymore, mm-hmm. home in Indiana. Megetsu mm-hmm. first started sitting in my attic. She came to interview me when she was working for the uh, Post Standard Herald Journal and uh, Syracuse newspapers, I guess we can say, whatever's left of them. And somehow that interview turned into wonderful teacher-student relationship. We never know. <laughs> I met Blanche Hartman many, many years ago. And I think the first time we met was here. We had just gotten this property and the American Zen Teachers Association, which at the time was quite small, was going to meet at Zen Mountain Monastery. Daido Luri Roshi was still alive, and Myotai Sensei was still practicing there. And so I offered our new place for the women's meeting that we decided we would always have, at the time, in the 19, mid-1990s, it seemed really important for women teachers to get together and talk about some of the ways we still felt marginalized, uh, excluded, uh, found that it was difficult to speak in our own voices, what voices were they anyway. Um, there was a lot of exploitation in many, many Zen and other Buddhist centers of various kinds. And so we would get together. This was, I think, the second meeting that I participated in, the first being at Vermont, when I think there were only six or seven Buddhist teachers, women, meeting. So the next year we met here, and I think by that time, there were about 10 of us. Diane Benage had come back from her 23 years in Japan. Mm-hmm. Um, Blanche, uh, maybe Edo Carney, um, Catherine Thanas, who passed away a few years ago. Uh, I don't remember who the others are, but we have a picture of us dancing on the front lawn. Mm. 
in a circle, <laughs> doing a, a very beautiful, kind of graceful, feeling the Dharma grace. And uh, after that, whenever I was out west, I would stay at San Francisco Zen Center, and I don't know why, one year Andy and I went out there, I can't remember what the circumstances were. The only thing I remember is Blanche taking us to dinner at Green's Restaurant. Green's mm -hmm. is world-renowned for its remarkably delicious uh, meals created from what is grown at Green Gulch, San Francisco Zen Center's farm in the Bay Area. And uh, I've been there a few times, but the time with Blanche as hostess was quite different. First of all, they showed us into a private room I didn't know existed. And we had the most exquisite food. and wonderful conversation. And she was so unassuming. She had a, a quiet dignity and a ready enjoyment of everything in life. And was the one people turned to to learn how to sew quesas and raksus. She was a dharma seamstress. That's why the poem I wrote that I recited earlier included sewing these patched robes for Buddhas. Mm. Generation after generation after generation. San Francisco Zen Center has more authorized teachers at various places in this country than probably any center, even Zen Center of Los Angeles, which has a fair number of Roshis floating around. But anyway, if you're out west, you cannot walk down the street without bumping into a center run by one of the students from San Francisco Zen Center who has finished her or his training there. And it's been one of the issues that they've had to deal with. Too many people. What are we going to do with all these people? Let's see. Send them to Kansas. Send them to Texas. Hmm? Yes, you can get one. <laughs> Just put in a request. <laughs> Every time I've stayed at San Francisco Zen Center, there's been quite a large number of residents. It's a beautiful old building that was uh, designed by a woman architect back in the 20s, I believe, maybe a little earlier, as a Jewish home. And somehow, as is often the case, one tradition turns into another. Mm -hmm. And so it has a beautiful courtyard, many, many rooms, and beautiful plantings, and 
is tended to by the residents just as this place is. One of the things that was so clear about Blanche was the fact that she absolutely had no use for and no involvement in, no engagement in the petty rivalries and kind of uh, jockeying for position that is so common among her peers in America. I don't really want to even say peers, but anyway, colleagues. She was peerless. So I wanted to read something that she wrote. And um, a few months ago, her book came out, and I did read excerpts of it from it to you at one talk or another. But just as her body has now disappeared, so has her book. I searched everywhere last night, could find no trace of Blanche. However, she is in the hidden lamp, along with many other women. This is a book that some of you know, some maybe don't. It's called The Hidden Lamp, Stories from 25 Centuries of Awakened Women. So they're Buddhist stories that have commentaries by, by various women teachers, and including my own on a story of Hakuin. This one is Blanche's reflection. First, I'll read the story. An old woman in China supported a monk for many years. She built him a hermitage and provided him with food and clothing. After 20 years, she wondered what he had attained and resolved to test him. She, she summoned a beautiful girl some people say it was her niece, some say it was just from the village, and sent her to the hermit with instructions to embrace him and then ask him how he felt. The girl caressed the monk and asked, how do you feel just now? A withered tree on a cold boulder has no warmth in winter, replied the monk. The girl returned to the old woman and told her what had happened. What? The old woman said, to think I've been supporting an imposter for all these years. She grabbed a stick, hurried to the hermitage, and beat the monk, shouting, get out of here. Then she burned the hermitage to the ground. Mm -hmm. How many of you know this story? It's a well-known koan. So first I'll read what Blanche's reflection is. I think that the monk in this koan was totally off base in his attempt to squelch his human feelings in his efforts to shut down rather than celebrate 
his human feelings. Ehe Dogen describes enlightened beings as having few desires. But I don't think that having few desires means suppressing feeling. For me, it means just being aware of all that we have to be grateful for and thereby knowing that we don't need anything more. Through Zen practice, we develop a greater and greater appreciation of everything around us. We don't become an old withered stump. I'm much more alive than I was when I started this practice and much more appreciative. And that's true of most Zen people I know. The practice is not about suppressing desire or destroying our humanity, but about allowing it to flow out to everything rather than to a particular object. I met Zen practice through Suzuki Roshi, Katagiri Roshi, and Sojin Mel Weitzman. And these were not withered trees. These were very lively people. In every photo I have of Suzuki Roshi, and I have a lot of them, he's laughing or smiling. My teachers and my practice have never taught me not to enjoy life. The deeply seasoned teachers I've had the opportunity to meet have all been supportive to people who are suffering, but they have also been very playful and lighthearted. I understand the precepts not as rules to follow, but more as be very careful in this area of human life because there's a lot of suffering there. So pay attention to what you're doing. Like a sign on a frozen pond that says, danger, thin ice, rather than shame on you. Our vow is to help people end suffering, not to add to their suffering. I feel that there is a way to live without objectifying anyone as a sexual object while still appreciating their beauty. This is living by the precepts. In the case of the monk and the young girl, was she going to be hurt by any show of affection on his part? I don't know the circumstances of her life, but I get the impression that the girl was a willing participant and as such likely to have her feelings hurt by rejection. But the monk had used the practice to shut down all feeling so as not to be disturbed by it. That's a misunderstanding of a teaching, which is about the ending of suffering. The monk could have responded to the young woman kindly, saying to her, for instance, you're young and beautiful and very attractive, but I'm a celibate monk, so I'm really sorry I can't accommodate you. Responding in the way he did, he wasn't being compassionate. I love to teach the Brahma Viharas, practices of loving kindness and compassion, and the Metta Sutta. In the Metta Sutta, we chant, suffusing love over the whole 
entire world, above, below, and all around, without limit, cultivating an infinite goodwill toward the whole world. I find this a sublime vision, considering all the discord and enmity that seems to be happening in our world. I exchange a lot of hugs with students in the Doksan room. I know it's not orthodox, and perhaps some people might brand it as inappropriate, but since I'm old enough to be most people's grandmother, I hope it's all right. If someone is suffering, I might get up at the end of the interview and give someone a hug. Sometimes, of course, I realize that a hug would be an encroachment, so I don't hug the person. So far, people seem to have found it comforting rather than distressing or confusing. One time, Brother David Steinelrast, a Benedictine monk who practiced with Suzuki Roshi, was giving a talk at Tassara Zen Monastery and someone asked him about his vow of celibacy. Brother David said in response, but if I want to love everyone the same, I have to be either celibate or very promiscuous. <laughs> I love that image of loving everyone the same. That's something I've taken on myself to love everyone the same, to love everyone completely. <clears throat> it's not about withering our perception or appreciation of the world around us. It's about becoming more and more appreciative of the world around us. It's beauty, all it has to offer us, and our total connection with it. So last week, <clears throat> exactly a week ago, I gave nine students the precepts. Dairin, otherwise known as Sean, was one of them. And I quoted our sixth ancestor, whose platform sutra we'll be delving into again tonight at Dharma study. And I hope you all can come. And in one of the great koans, he's being chased after receiving the bowl and the robe from the fifth ancestor secretly at night and told to go away quickly and hide out because there is bound to be jealousy and revenge. So he's doing what he's been told to do and along comes Monk Mio, who had been a general before ordination and was still possessed of that kind of military spirit. And the Monk Mio comes in pursuit. The sixth ancestor sees him gaining on him. And what does he do? He puts the woven bowl on a rock. 
Exactly. He puts the robe and the bowl down on a rock. And he says to Mio, what? Take it. Go ahead. You are coming after the robe <clears throat> and the bowl, symbolizing the transmission. Go ahead. Take them. Then what happens? Mio tried to pick them up and couldn't do it. They were as heavy as a mountain. Mio could not lift them. And covered in sweat, feeling a sense of great awe, if not terror, Monk Mio said, For the Dharma. I the have king. come for the Dharma, not, not for, the... for the robe and the bowl, right? Mm. Suddenly transformed by this uncanny situation. Then the sixth ancestor, Enyo, said, Think neither good nor evil. At this moment, what is the original self of the monk Myo? Hearing these words, Myo was enlightened. So this story really requires us, just as committing ourselves to leading a life according to the precepts, requires us to investigate deeply what it is to think neither good nor evil. And as we all have come to see, it's not so easy. How many times in any one sitting has your thinking not been pervaded by dualistic considerations? Of course, very few of you are concocting evil schemes in your zazen. And yet, the more we sit, the longer we sit, the more we get in touch with our original self nature. the more we see the subtlety of this dualistic mind form. We may call good and evil, right and wrong, this and that. What's it all based on?
Self. Having a self, right? Separate from everything else or self and other the primary dualism is self and other so as I say the longer we sit the more minutely attentive we become to these dualistic ways of seeing the world to the point that we are much quicker to let those dualistic thought forms go. Right? Seeing them, seeing them for what they are, allows us to live in a, a what I'll call a disentangled way more and more. So there is this gradual deepening, gradual returning to fundamental oneness that we cannot help but feel. Blanche talks about feeling. It's not just about feeling what seems to be out there. It's about feeling this, un this, this fundamental unity that is the governing and grounding impulse for our lives. To be true to this, not true to some kind of superimposed good and bad, right and wrong, self-other formulation. But this story is so interesting because it seems to be very much about that, right? And this morning we glanced at the New York Times front page and it was all about how Trump feels about women. And as long as they are unquestionably sex objects, he's fine with them. He just doesn't like them when they get old, when they disagree with him, when they don't look the way he likes to be surrounded by. So he can be extremely <coughs> forthcoming with his negative evaluations. And for the same reason that he now is the Republican nominee, people feel empowered by that. Caught in the entanglement of dualistic thinking. How wonderful to find someone who just puts it out there. Oh good, I don't have to hide it anymore. So this is basically what we're up against. We call it politics, but it's really life and life only as Dylan would say. It's never been different. Sometimes we have politicians who put a good veneer over it and we say, well, I like that one. But underneath there's always this, otherwise how could we have what? War? Where does war start? 
how can you have war without this fundamental dualistic attitude, right? We're good, they're bad. We're worth saving, they're the other, kill them. And it's not so remote. Of course, nobody in this room is going to go out and get an automatic machine gun and blow people away after this talk. But, but what? We have many of the same feelings and many thoughts. Many of the same feelings and thoughts. They just don't manifest in that uh, outrageous a way. And we have tools to address them. Right. What are our tools? Well, the Dharma, I mean, the, the precepts. Mm. We're addressing them. So that's a very important point. When you have a strong spiritual practice, no matter what it is, you are addressing these um, negative or violent ways of thought. So when we do the verse of purification, we are not just saying we purify our actions. We're not just saying we purify our speech. We're saying we purify our thoughts. We are re-evaluating what seems to spring up in our thoughts and seeing them as the potential for violence, the potential for harm, right? And this is so subtle. Usually we can keep it, the action, we can keep it to uh, perhaps speech, relegate it only to speech, but too often it goes beyond that. So this old woman testing the monk that she's taken in. After 20 years, he's been sitting there in that hut. And he would seem to be doing exactly what he should be doing, right? Living the life of a celibate monk, not running after any beautiful young women who might be out there on the street, not drinking, not carousing, just being a good monk. And so you might think, well, the old woman should be very pleased that she is harboring such an upright, upstanding young monk. But what is all of this setting up? The story itself, what's it setting up? Dualistic context. Hmm? Dualistic context. Yeah, it's a completely dualistic concept that's being set up by the story. That's the point of every koan. It, it gives you a good dualistic concept. And then it says, here, solve this with your good dualistic logical mind. Mm -hmm. And no matter where you go with that good logistical mind, it's still trapped in concepts. Concepts cannot see through concepts. So the old woman decides she'll ask somebody who is quite lovely and young to go in there and test him. If the old woman went into his hut and sat down in his lap, 
somehow doesn't work. <laughs> but somebody else who might tempt him, she is thinking to herself, how does he respond to something completely natural? That is, somebody beautiful who is inviting him to engage in some affectionate act. How will he handle it? What's the problem with his response? It's about him. His response is about him. I am a celibate monk. A withered tree on a rock. I have no spark left. I have extinguished my human feelings. Is this the point of our practice? I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly not. Everything that Blanche said in her comment makes that clear, right? Clearly not. So the point is, if we're coming from a divided mind, a dualistic mind, then it will always be all about us, ourselves, separate from. And we will see whatever happens as a threat. This monk perceived this lovely young woman as a threat to his self-proclaimed, I am past such things. Of course, at the same time, if he had responded to her as a sexual being and made some kind of overture to her, would the old woman have let him stay? Equally, no. That would have been the other extreme, right? Something in the middle. Mm. So what would be the middle way? in this situation. To acknowledge her beauty, mm -hmm. but to refuse her. To acknowledge her beauty, but to refuse to become entangled. Mm -hmm. To refuse is a, a word that could be similar to what he said. How could he respond to her as a human being whole? as one whole being to another without separation. Coming from the wholeness that we speak of when we say this mind or fundamental unity. Hmm? This unlimited mind this boundless truth that we are all sitting to realize, to experience. So when it goes beyond the concepts, 
when it comes to realizing this, then whatever action, whatever words, whatever thoughts come, they are not separate from this. So, what would you say to the girl? Thank you. Hmm? We already got the first part. Appreciating her beauty. Hmm? And then? But no thank you. Hmm? <laughs> but no thank you. But no thank you. Hmm. You are so beautiful. I really appreciate your tenderness, your invitation. Something has to be said beyond but no thank you. That's good. Mm -hmm. But no thank you, comma, what? If you don't see her as separate, from yourself, then you care very much about her, right? She is not an object that is there to entice you, but rather a human being that you care about. So what do you say? Trump would say, go put on a bikini and we'll talk about it. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes, he does. It would be harmful to me <clears throat> to take you up on your offer. And it would be harmful to you to do that to me, and I don't want to hurt either of us. Mm, it would be harmful to me and to you. There's still some trace, isn't there, of separation there? You are so beautiful, but no thank you. Okay, we got that far. Well, let's take the out the me part. Hmm? There must be some young man in the village. Correct. There must be something for you, right? In other words, get beyond what might harm me. But this may cause harm, and I want you to find what you deserve. Right? Somebody you're going to meet in the future, most likely you have a nice time, you get married and have babies, and we can't do that. I don't want to put you in a situation that's compromising for your future. It's something along those lines. So you all have you all have touched on it very well. Now put them all together. No, thank you. Don't want to create harm. Please take care of yourself. Somebody in the future you may see wonderful relationship may develop. So this kind of feeling, this koan is expressing, to come from this think neither good nor evil. If we are not stuck thinking good or evil, then we can just respond naturally, right? Naturally from this mind that is not caught in dualistic thinking. Therefore, whatever is said, will express that care, that love, that compassion, that concern, that is not about, oh, what's going to happen to me? 
most of the time we're more concerned about what's going to happen to me. No doubt about it. And that's why we sit. And this is why Dogen said, enlightenment is practice. It's not something out there, up there, eventually we're going to realize, but right here, right now. And he said, practice is enlightenment. Right here, the way you are now. You feel like, you know, totally you're screwing up your lives. Okay, you can't focus on anything. Okay, your medication is no good. Okay, this is it. Enlightenment, right here, right now, as you are, could not be otherwise. So what does that make you feel? I hope it makes you feel embraced. Not by some pretty young girl who's been sent on an errand to tempt you out of your withered tree, but to feel embraced by this mind. Just as it is, you cannot get out of it. So let's not try. Let's not put our energy into self-other. Let's put our energy into this mind.